Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app. And the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods. And it just allows the users to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the gearbox. And what the gearbox is, it is a an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the go wild community is using in the field what products they're using but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products there's you, there's a shopping function on it so Check out the Go Wild app if you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet. You need to, and you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet, chasing bear. In the hunting world, I wouldn't have necessarily been familiar with the term bushcraft. It's not something that we use in hunting. But Rick Spicer is big into bushcraft, wilderness survival, and he teaches those things. And he's also uh, a mountaineer, a hiker, and a, basically a wilderness adventurer. And that's a lot of his background. He's also a hunter. He's a primitive hunter, primitive archer, naps his own flint. And he's deeply vested inside the outdoor 
community has traveled all over the world climbing mountains. Me and Rick talk about mountaineering, some near-death experiences. We talk about his primitive archery. And the main thing we talk about is how to connect these two different groups who both have vested interest in wild places. And we talk about how people from the extreme outdoors and just generally people who are hikers, canoers, mountaineers, you know, kind of how they can transition and how a lot of them want to, but maybe don't know how to transition into hunting and acquiring wild meat from these wild places. Really interesting conversation with a super interesting guy, Rick Spicer. You'll want to check out W Hunting Supply if you have any hound or dog related needs from Garmin products, leashes and collars, or just expertise on on how to use Garmin products. The customer service at DU is excellent. DUHuntingSupply.com. As we're coming into the fall, we're going to be starting to think about fall bear baiting. Northwoods Bear Products, best bear commercial sense on the market. If you're baiting bears, it does not make sense for you to not be using Northwoods. As you've heard me say many times, the product that I use year in and year out is the Northwoods Gold Rush Fryer Additive. It's more powerful than any natural scent that you could that you could have with just natural foods. And it's going to draw bears in. The more bears you have coming in, the more opportunity that you have to be selective on which bear to take, which is a great proponent, uh, which is a great advantage inside of hunting bears over bait. Check out Northwoods Bear Products. And check out our buddies at the Western Bear Foundation. These guys are a nonprofit hunting conservation organization that are representing bear hunters, bears, and wild places out west. All right. I was trying to think of a new way to do an uh, opening here, Colby. Yeah. What do um, you, you have on your mind? I don't know. I think I'm doing it right now. This is a new way to open the podcast. <laughs> Considering how to, Considering, how to open it. Rick, do you have any ideas for how we could open this podcast? Well, I've, To you be know, just not sure. the same. Because we right. usually say, we're at the Bear Hunting Magazine yep. Global Headquarters. Yep. So we're not going to say that today. Right. Okay. Um, um, well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm used to with your... Because I've, you know, <laughs> I've listened to... Uh, several of them and so yeah it's hard to break away once you've got a something that's worked for you for it, a while, right? it has worked for us it has worked um, for us i'll give you that but at the same time uh yeah sometimes change is uh worth exploring i think so yes um i don't know oh it's always interesting well how about we start by saying you're hearing the voice of rick spicer there you uh, go rick I've just met you pretty recently. I've known of you for a long time. Yeah, and likewise, I've known of you for actually years, primarily because of your cousin. Um, but yeah. uh, but more more recently because obviously of the the podcast and the magazine and all that stuff, and yeah. you know, uh, being a local guy. Uh, yeah. and the, you know, as you know, you've kind of ma- been making a name for yourself and kind of getting out there and all that, you know, you can't help, but, you know, especially if you're in that Instagram world and all that stuff, you know, yeah. you just start yeah. to see these things. Well, I thought it was cool, Colby. Uh, I walked into Packrat, and we'll get mm-hmm. into 
pack rat. What that is is a store in Fayetteville. Yeah. And uh, I recognized Rick behind his mask. <laughs> so I had a full, a full, like, uh, um, right, the buff. I yeah, was wearing, the buff, like, like the... you know, like ninja, like all the way up to the eyes almost. Uh-huh. And then, uh, and I had on some mask that was like pulling my ears down to where I was like, <laughs> my kids make fun of me. I have a pretty big head. So when I wear a mask, like a regular yeah. mask that was made for somebody else, like it, uh, like my ears must be like way back on my head because it like stretches them down. So yeah. anyway, I took my mask off and said, "Hey, Rick, are you Rick or something like no, that?" Anyway, I, I recognized you too, though. Uh, so yeah, I kind of, kind of knew who it was. It wasn't a surprise. I yeah, guess, yeah. I say. Well, I think that's a good that's a good place to to start introducing who Rick is. You're, you're, uh, yeah, let me give a, like a little introduction and then we can go into the different segments of it. Uh, Sounds you good. are, uh, you are, a, a mountaineer, an outdoorsman, a hiker. Uh, your, your history is pretty deep into like the, the, the outdoor world and part of that being a, the non hunting outdoor world of mountaineering and hiking. Correct. And you are, you are you are part owner owner of uh, of part. a store in Fayetteville, Arkansas called Packrat. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Also, so this is a short intro. You are a hunter. I am. And you are into napping flint arrowheads. Yep. Traditional archery. You're into uh bushcraft, which I want to talk about that because that's a word that that uh I think I mean, I'm not that fa- familiar with the term bushcraft, and that's kind mm-hmm. of ironic because sure. hunters, if other hunters are like me, that's not a term we use no. to describe, it's, even though we're out in wild places probably doing yep. some of this. But anyway, you're big into that stuff. and uh, I think as time goes by, all these circles start to overlap more and more, you know what yeah. I mean, which I think ultimately is is what we're kind of arrive at a little later in our conversation today. Yeah. Uh, you know, and just sort of looking at um, how all these different things are related. And, uh, you know, I guess ultimately we've, no matter which one of those circles you find yourself in, there's, I like to think there's a lot more that uh, overlaps and brings us together than there is that yeah. separates us. Absolutely. So, man, what got you into like extreme mountaineering and stuff? You know, that's a really good question. I've, I've been asked that a few times in my life and it's weird. You know, I grew up very much a traditional Arkansas upbringing. I'm from East Arkansas in the Delta and I grew up hunting and fishing over there with my dad. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what I knew. But probably when I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old, I remember my grandpa gave me this, like, for lack of a better term, a Rambo knife. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And it was way too big a knife. Did it have the screw off? Compass uh, on it the back. It did not have that, but oh. it had like a. It had a sheath with all that stuff in it, like okay, pouches yeah. on the sheath. So it had the fishing it had kit a in there, and, fishing the, kit right yeah, and all that stuff. And and of course, my my parents were like, "What well, are you crazy? What are you giving a knife like that to eight year old kid?" And because uh, <laughs> it's cool, right? You know, and and I like to think that you know he he trusted me well enough not to cut my foot off with it or something like that. But um, I just I, as far back as I can remember. I just knew I wanted to be in the most wild places I could get to. Mm-hmm. You know, I just it was wanted just default inside of you. And it yeah, and it didn't really even really matter like what I was doing there. Like I could I yeah. might go to hunt, I might go to fish, I might go to climb a mountain, I might go to 
just hike or just be there. But I just knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I really don't even can, you know, know when that started, but, um, and I, I guess ultimately I'm grateful for that because it's led me to do a lot of different things in many, many different places in the U S and, and all over the world really. And, uh, so I guess it's just, it was always just that innate curiosity. Did, did your, were there influential figures in your life that, that helped you learn to value wild? And when I say wild places, because I'm kind of looking back into my life as well. Sure. And like my my dad, who I talk about like every other podcast, yeah, yeah. like he uh, he valued like getting as far back as we possibly could. Sure. He valued wild places. And I think probably over a lifetime, he built that into me before I was even conscious. Yeah. Did you have that? Was yeah, your- I mean, I had a similar experience. So, you know, my father was never uh, like a a backpacker, so to speak, you know, we, we didn't have real hike in and camp places, but he was always very influential when it came to the outdoors in general. Yeah. And that was just something we did in our family. It was, yeah. uh, and my grandfather wasn't a hunter, but he was like a crazy fisherman. Like that was okay. like all he, all he thought about was, mm-hmm. you know, he was a carpenter and a fisherman. And so, um, those were the things. And did and he fish I, on the Mississippi River over there? A little bit, but mostly it was it was those river shoots, you know, Octo oh, really? Lakes and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, okay. That's what okay. I grew up fishing in when, from a very young age. Okay. You know, places like that. So yeah, yeah. So what have you? Give me an overview of some of your mountaineering. Like I know you've been down to South America. Yeah. Where so, Where have you been? Yeah, I've, I've been lucky to go to quite a few places. So I've done, oh, probably half a dozen trips or so to South America. You know, I've wow. done, uh, the, the biggest mountains I've ever climbed in my life are Peru. Okay. Um, and there, that's the Andes mountain range and there's mountains over 20,000 feet down there. Wow. And so, you know, I've been fortunate to Wait climb. Wait a minute. We got to stop here. Um, how, how tall is, uh, Mount Everest? Uh, 29,000 35 feet tall. 29,000. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. and the, that's, you know, of course in the Himalayas in Asia and those, the, yeah. those are the tallest mountain range or tallest mountains. So in the, in the world Andes, over there. the biggest mountains yeah, are just so over 20,000 feet. Yeah. Way up to, so Aconcagua is the tallest mountain in South America and it's on the border of Argentina and Chile. And, okay. um, I've seen it, I haven't climbed it, but, um, I've, I've driven by it. And, um, you know, I had done a lot of climbing, rock climbing, um, from a young age. I started rock climbing when I was probably 13, 14 years old. I was in an explorer post as a boy. and uh, In an explorer post? Yeah, it? so that's like a branch of scouting. Gotcha. So okay, as, okay. As, cool. as you develop in scouting, and I don't even honestly know if, if it's a thing anymore. Okay. But um, it was kind of a subsidiary, so to speak, of scouting. And there was, um, of course, a couple dads that um, yeah. were involved and volunteers and things. And... Um, there's some kids that I went to uh, school with. And so we just started camping and repelling and trying to find caves to go into. And we were lucky yeah. to have a, a couple of folks that uh, adults that looked after us, you know, and, and tried to keep us from getting hurt and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I found rock climbing. And from there, it just, it went a hundred different directions, really. It was like, yeah. oh man, I want to do this. I want to do that. I kind of wanted to try everything, but I didn't, I didn't mean to derail you. We were in South America. Yeah. Yeah. 20,000 foot mountains. Yeah. So I've been there a couple of times. Um, but yeah, I've been to Colombia. I've been to Argentina. I've been okay. to Chile. So I've spent quite a lot of time. I love South America. And what, so, okay. On one of those trips, you go down there. What are your objectives? Like, you're not like going on like a 
20 mile loop trail like taking photos like uh, or, or, or are you well, trying to go like, i have actually too and and, that, and i actually do that type of thing with my wife you know my okay. wife is not a climber she's you know she she doesn't hunt she she likes fishing a little bit but mainly she just likes to be in beautiful places outdoors yeah. Yeah. and uh yeah. that's an experience that we love to share together so about half the the stuff that i've done especially as as you know i've gotten older and we've been together um will be trips that are just basically hiking trips or backpacking trips. So we're yeah. living out of a backpack for multiple days and we're just going to enjoy nature and take yeah. photographs and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But the other half of the time, um, I, uh, you know, it's what I like to call type two fun. Yeah. Uh, we're going, um, or I'm going and whoever I'm going with, or we're going to be challenged, mm-hmm. uh, to try to, you know, attempt something that is, it's always a fine line of doing something that's, dangerous enough to be sort of interesting and and uh, learn how to manage that risk but not mm-hmm. so dangerous that you know you're like man i may not come home if i yeah. <laughs> if i do yeah. this right so would that be like uh <clears throat> like a like a particular mountain like trying yeah. to reach the summit of that mountain so yes. you, would, you would go down to so you've been down there six times each time you were like we are going to climb to the top of this mountain. Yeah, we're going to climb to the top of this mountain. I would. It's akin to you know you're going to go on a big western, whatever elk hunt or what you know you you, you don't just go. go out there blind, right? You do yep. research ahead of time. Well, mountaineering is no different. You know you yeah. you do your research. You talk to people. You may get a guidebook or something like that. You learn what equipment you need, and client routes on on routes have rating systems, and so okay. you know you find a route that's rated that you feel like is appropriate for your level of skill, mm-hmm. and then at that point you say, okay, this is our objective, and you go there. Either most of the time as a team, I mean, a lot of these types of sports, it's even it's, it's a lot a more team. dangerous to do it alone, right? For sure. mm-hmm. Yeah, even though some people do it, right? Um, but typically, you know, you're you're tied into a rope with somebody else, and uh, you know, you're trying to make your way up. And sometimes you get to the top, and sometimes you uh, assess the situation and say, you know what, it's not worth it. We got to turn around and get down, either because of weather or mm. objective hazards. I mean, I've seen rock fall and avalanches and all kinds of things. You know, th- <clears throat> that that world is like. And it's super different than the, you know, like people might, like somebody that didn't know the outdoors might say, yeah, rock climbing and hunting. Well, they're just the adventure aspects. Right, right. Man, I get zero thrill out of being in super dangerous, like physical situations with rock and earth. Yeah. I don't mind that much at all dangerous situations with wild animals yeah yeah it, it's to me it's yeah it's totally different. different yeah it but is. i mean and, and i'm not a rock climber and i'm not an adventure mountaineer yep. at all i've never really right. done it but the times that i have experienced what might just be the touch of that i've been like get me off of here <laughs> i think a lot of it too comes down to what your experience level is though, yeah. right? Because you obviously have a great have deal of experience for... with wild animals. Like you know how to handle yourself when you're around bears and, you know, around mountain lions and things like that. But if you haven't, if you don't have that background of like traveling through complicated terrain in the mountains or canyons or stuff like that, you know, you just, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so yeah. learning to manage objective hazards, uh, you know, just because you know how to handle one situation doesn't mean you're prepared to handle another, right? Yeah. And so um, it just comes down to how you spend your time and experience level. Right, right. And, and where you're, you've dedicated yourself exactly. to the craft of... Yep. What you doing. love to do, yeah. you know? And yeah. it's not, none of it's right or wrong. It's just, how do you love to spend your time? 
And yeah. of course, that's what you're going to focus on. Okay, tell me, give me this answer. How 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 good are you? Just tell me the truth, Rick. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 like just in like mountaineering, like going down, and not good. You know, this isn't a competition. Sure, I know sure, it's sure. not, but like like how like what level? Like you know, somebody could describe probably their their competency in hunting if they were being realistic and honest. They could say, you know, I'm a fairly experienced hunter in this style of stuff like like what's your i mean man? i would call i would i would say that my experience level is quite high but my technical proficiency um does not match my level of experience in other words um i've been on i mean god i've probably climbed 100 mountains in in the 20 something years i've been doing it um but i have I'm also a careful guy and I look very carefully at, uh, what the risks are. And so I tend to, you know, I like to be challenged physically, but when it comes to like managing the risk on the route or whatever the climb is, I tend to pick things that I feel like I can pretty well stay in control of. Yeah. And, uh, so that, what that has done is it's, it's given me a lot of experience, but I've avoided a lot of things that were much more technical because I was just like, you know what? I can have just as good a time climbing this route that I feel like is much safer and I can manage than if I go do this harder one, but there's a a much higher element of risk involved. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, and and I was a, uh, so for a long time too, I was a rock climbing instructor. I had a certification with the American Mountain Guide Association, what's called a SPI. So I taught rock mm. climbing through that. Okay. And um, I didn't take people on big mountaineering expeditions. It was more like local rock climbing, right? Teaching okay. them how to go to a cliff and safely, you know, yeah. set the roots up and do all that. But I've, I've taught hundreds of people over the years, you know, how to rock climb. And so, um, I guess that one of the other things I've always enjoyed about it is, um, you know, I've, I've taught and brought a lot of friends and acquaintances along on trips like that. And I get a great deal of joy, um, out of, uh, you know, introducing people to these types of things and teaching them how to look after themselves. Yeah. Uh, for me, that's always been a, a I don't know, I get a, sense of accomplishment out of that because yeah. I, I love seeing somebody afterward that's like, Oh man, that was, that was amazing. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't think I could do that. I didn't think yeah. I'd ever do something like that. Yeah. Um, and it, it's always, uh, you know, felt really good to mm. share that type of experience with people. Have you ever almost died on the side of a mountain? Yes. W- yeah. What, give us an example of a, of a, of a story. So the, the one that sticks out above all the other ones, you know, just to cut to the chase. Yeah, tell went, us that yeah, one. Yeah, so in, <laughs> in Peru, it was the uh, first time I went, I guess it was 2001, maybe something like that. And I was with uh, one of my good climbing buddies, guy that I've done, you know, a large percentage of the, the climbs that I've done with. And we were ascending a mountain. It was a big peak. It was in the uh, the specific area we were in, it's called the Cordillera Blanca, uh, just north of Huaraz, Peru. Um, and we were uh, ascending a mountain, and it, there wasn't a lot of information about it. And so we didn't have really good up-to-date. We were going off a route description that was like years old, right? Mm. Well, what has happened in that mountain range, like many mountain ranges around the world, is these glaciers are receding Um mm because climate change and these types of things, right, you know? And so what happens is, is as the glacier recedes, there's all this exposed rock that Mm -hmm. for thousands of years had snow on top of it that 
that exposed rock is now sliding off the side of the mountain. The snow's not there to hold it in place anymore. And so we were unaware of how much of this exposed rock was above us. So we're ascending the side of this mountain, trying to get on the glacier up above us, which mm-hmm. is what we were going to try to do is climb the snow to get to the summit. And as we were going up this kind of really tight trough, we had made it up, I don't know, several hundred feet, maybe close to a thousand feet or so. Um, we heard some rock above us break loose. Mm. And uh, the next like several seconds was terrifying. It was mm. like a, like rocks the size of beer kegs coming down all around us. Oh, um, wow. I mean, and it was, you know, literally grace of God kind of thing that... Um, wow that I'm still here today that kind of tell the story about it. So, you know, we had big, big backpacks on and it was one of those things where adrenaline kicked in and like we literally ran down the side of that mountain. I don't know how we did it. So where did you go? How did you, I mean, so, that, so if, if rocks are coming from above you, like running downhill. Yeah. Seem like so a, what we did, you know, it was like, you got to come up with a plan and come up with it fast. Right. So what we did was, um, there wasn't a lot of places to take cover where we were and we knew we couldn't stay in there. And so um, we got behind the biggest boulder we could find to, you know, when there's like debris and stuff kind of going over our heads from this rock fall. And so just real quick, I'm like, okay, um, you know, we got to get down. We cannot stay here. What we're going to do is we're going to leapfrog this thing. So I'm going to go first and I'm going to go as far as I can until I get to the next boulder I can hide behind. When I get there, you're going to follow me. And literally we leapfrogged until we got down. Meanwhile, the weather moves in, and we get in a whiteout, and it starts to snow. Mm. While rock is tumbling down. While this stuff's going down. How long did this take? I'm envisioning this being like a 10-second ordeal. The the main deal was about that. It was probably 10 seconds or so, but there was a lot of debris and and smaller rocks that continued to fall. And you just realized you were in an unsafe Yeah, exactly. It's like this is a shooting gallery. I mean, you Mm. got rocks the size of baseballs. You know, they're still falling down this trough, whizzing by your head. You only take wow. one of those. You know, and, we, of course, we had helmets on and stuff, but I don't care what kind of really? helmet you, you had got helmets. On. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't. You got to have a helmet on doing that type of stuff. And um, so, uh, but as the weather moved in, um, we, we finally got to a place where we felt like we were safe. The rocks weren't going to, you know, get us anymore. And we crawled under this very large boulder, probably size of a house, and got underneath that thing. And it, <clears throat> it had a... Uh, kind of an alcove underneath it. And it was quite wide, but it was only just barely big enough where like we couldn't fully sit up underneath it. Right. Okay. So you think of yourself like kind of leaning with your, on your elbow on the ground. Yeah. Uh, we spent three and a half days under that rock. Oh, no wow. way. Uh, yeah. It started snowing and kept on snowing and kept on snowing. We couldn't see anything because it was wide out. Wow. And just so you and one other guy. Me and one guy. Yeah. And what, uh, what time of year was it? This was June. So were you concerned about not ever getting to be able, I mean, like, were you concerned about, I mean, so the good thing is, is it happened like day two of the trip and we were, we had provisions for a week. Mm -hmm. So we had food, you know, we were okay other than, uh, you know, basically just being somewhat What was the elevation? Oh, at that point it was probably 16,000. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's where we were at. Yeah. It was pretty high. Wow. Um, Were you... uh, what does that do to you on the inside? Were you scared? 
Uh, I mean, well, I know I, was, you, I know you were yeah, scared in the moment in with the, the moment. rocks, but like after you were no, you know, at that point because after everything calmed down, I mean, even the next day we were still considering like how can we get back up on the mountain? You know, we were obviously we're like, well, we're not going that way, right? And so um, part of the reason, I mean, it's possible we could have gotten down a little bit early, but you know, we probably had a f- close to a foot of snowfall um, by the time everything was said and done, and between the conditions not being able to see the snowfall and everything we were like it's not worth trying to find another safe way up this mountain we just don't feel like it's you know there's plenty of mountains down here i think we're done with this one Mm. and at that point we hiked out and uh of course they weren't expecting us uh until later so we didn't have a ride so we ended up having to like hitchhike to get a ride <laughs> back oh, into really? town yeah we're, so where are those outfitted deals in the sense that like someone drives you out there uh yeah and you'll you'll appreciate this um there's so you what many folks do us included down there is they hire these guys called Edieros and they're their mule drivers oh so really you mm. yeah so what you do on the way up to your base camp is a mule carries your big pack. Yes. Yeah. I knew that this yeah. com- I knew that this conversation was gonna end up in the right yeah. spot. So um you hire a guy and he's usually got two mules, one for or one mule one to one ratio, one mule for each climber. And um your big pack goes in the back of the mule with maybe some extra food or whatever else you want to carry. And you just hike up with a day pack on. And that's oh, nice okay. because it allows you to acclimate and kind of prepare. But save your legs because you're not carrying a 60 pound backpack. You know that is exactly the strategy that I use with my mules. <laughs> yep. They carry all the gear, so when I get to where I want to go, I'm feeling good. There mules you go. are that's, the answer. That's it. <laughs> um, so, so what? So like, how much? So if you were at 16,000 feet, how much elevation had you gained? Uh, so the town, it's been a while, honestly, since, and I don't recall the exact elevation uh, of what it was, but it's on up there. I want to say it's at least 12,000 feet, maybe a little bit higher. Okay. You know, but you would drive up some of that. Okay. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Me. Well, we just we just got back from Colorado, and uh, we did, you know, I mean, a minor, minor hike compared sure. to something like that. But we uh, started at like 10,000 feet and went to almost 13,000. Uh-huh. In about a four mile yeah, stretch, absolutely, it's it's pretty intense. Yep. I mean, especially with that elevation. Elevation well, is th- legit. Yeah, and you're coming from Arkansas, right? Yeah. I mean, that, for like, one, we're there for like three yeah, days. One thing that people don't realize that I haven't spent a lot of time at altitude and things like that is, I mean, yeah, it helps to have some fitness, but the fact of the matter is, you know, there's acclimation that has to happen, and the only thing that will allow that to happen is time. Your body has to make more red blood cells. So you can absorb that oxygen or the lack of oxygen right. oxygen when you're up there. And I don't care what kind of shape you're in, you can still get altitude sickness, you know, AMS or HAPE or something like that from being in that situation where you go from a low elevation place like Arkansas to, high to a high elevation. So how many days does it take to I mean, I realize it would be great if you were there for like a month. But exactly. I mean like like two days yeah, later I mean, are you better? Uh, you know, more the better, but yeah, I mean obviously and it depends on how high you're going. Um and everyone to some degree reacts slightly differently but for the average person i would say a few days um is ideal you know but there's so many you know nowadays people's time is often so limited and they're like oh well i'd love to do that but i don't have time i want to do this trip whatever it is whether it's a hunting trip climbing trip whatever and so you know that's why you hear about these things is because it's a lack of time people go they charge up into the mountains and then they end up getting acute mountain sickness or something like that. You know, they got a headache. Yeah. And the only thing you can do when that happens is go down. 
Really? You know, yeah. I, I mean, you can't fix it. You it can, doesn't just you can, there's fix no itself. drug you can, t- I mean, you can medicate ahead of time, although I'm not really a fan of that type of thing. The, the best thing to do is give yourself time. If it's a mild case, sometimes you can stay put, drink a lot of water, keep yourself hydrated, and you okay. can sort of get over it. Does but, that usually happen like above like 10,000 feet? Yeah, for, that's a pretty good. See, I've, I've uh, hunted quite a bit in Montana. At, Four to seven thousand right. feet. Yep. And people were like, "Oh man, you're gonna have to worry about altitude." And it never has affected me that much. Right. But in Colorado, last week. Yep. We we the town we stayed in was over ten thousand. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, it, it it wouldn't have crushed me. And I try not to take too much personal note of uh, physical <laughs> ailments. I try not to give it too much attention. Yeah, so if I hadn't, yeah. I probably would just been like, "Man, I don't." Feel great, like, oh, but I recognized what was happening, and I and I actually didn't feel good for about a day. Yeah, and then but then the next day I yep. was pretty much fine. And it's just because you gave yourself that night. You know yeah. the, the old adage with climbers, but this can apply to anyone traveling into that terrain: is you climb high and you sleep low. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you want to do. Um, and so even if you're an elk hunter, you know, if you're going up into the mountains, if you want to scout or, or hunt or whatever, you're going to go check out ridges to glass, whatever it may be. If you can go back down the mountain and sleep at a lower elevation and that's going to do a better job of acclimating you and you're going to feel better of course mm. you've got to travel more and so you've yeah. got to put more work into it but, but if you have a mule there you go <laughs> that's right he does the work I've had altitude sickness it's terrible yeah it's no you got fun. altitude sickness moving to northwest Arkansas from Dallas <laughs> <laughs> I still can't oh. I still can't breathe <laughs> no I went from Texas to Colorado and it killed me yeah Uh, i didn't miss a morning or evening hunt but i felt terrible and just slept every moment that i could and pretty much guarantee you had a uh, acute mountain sickness yeah and then Mm. chugging pepto and drinking as much water as i could and i didn't eat for three or four days it was just i didn't want to um this is not a topic switch slightly different area of mountaineering uh my daughter met alex honald yes okay the other day yep she, uh, Mr. Free ran, it was a random deal, but she met Alex Honnold. Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you think of that guy? Uh, I think a lot of them, uh, you know, he doesn't, uh, he's, he's very aware that what he's doing is about as dangerous as you could, you know, for do, someone who right? didn't know Alex Honnold, tell him who he is. Yeah. So Alex Honnold is a, a sponsored North Face athlete and he's widely considered to be the best free soloist rock climber that's ever lived. And what that means is, is he climbs very large rock vertical faces without any type of equipment or protection to keep himself from falling. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't use ropes or anything. Right. Like that. So he's, uh, you know, there's many films out there about him. You can look what him up. What did he and, climb? Uh, big oh, mountain in Yosemite? Yeah, he's, you know, his, the first big one he did that got him famous was Half Dome in Yosemite. But he's done El Capitan. He's done yeah, all over the world. He's done. Just, so he's just climbing a rock with no ropes. Yeah, I mean. Certain death if you fall. A- athletically. There's almost no comparison in terms of what he has accomplished, you know. But, really? but at the same time, you know, time, if you saw, okay, here when when my daughter showed, she she had a picture. Yeah. With, it was at the Capitol yeah. actually in DC, yeah. and uh, he's like an unimpressive guy. Oh, he's yeah. He's I mean, like he, he's like five ten yeah. maybe. He's a lanky scrawny. guy. I mean, in very fit, obviously. Yeah, but like. He, he's, you know, got on a T-shirt and some shorts walking around. You couldn't pick him out of a crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's not, you know, he's just a. So what makes guy. him a world-class so, athlete? So um, it's, 
I would say the number one thing is mentally. He is really? like he, he his mind is um yeah, he's very different. Um mm-hmm. There's actually they do some some kind of medical research on one of on him and I, it I talks heard about, about that. that and he's he doesn't how he responds feel, to stress yeah he he doesn't respond to stress and he doesn't get like endorphin release like the rest of us do when he gets in normal situations that would normally cause stress so he can keep himself much under much more under control than the average person when he's in like really dangerous situations so mm-hmm. does that mean that it's really like on the mountain a lot of what you would be doing is really not a physical challenge. Like your body could do it, but your mind could I mean, there's some of that, but the stuff he's doing, no. It's like only, I mean, I've I, been rock climbing over 20 years. I couldn't hope to do, to even, even with ropes, even on my best day. I couldn't climb what he's climbing really? with all the equipment in the world, let alone free solo it without yeah. a rope or anything like that. I mean, he, he's astonishing. I mean, his finger holds are crazy. Like, yeah, I mean, what's their hold? what he can grip a hold yeah, of and the, just... It's, it's unreal. But at the same time, he doesn't condone what he does. He doesn't recommend it. He, he's yeah, very yeah. aware that it is dangerous. And, um, you know, it's a choice that he's made for himself. It's how he's decided to live his life. And, you know, uh, I have a lot of respect for someone that knows themselves well enough to say, you know what, this is who I am, and I'm willing to die for it. And yeah. as long as he's not prescribing other people to, to yeah. you know, take that up, then that he has every right to, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So no, I, I, we've watched many of those films with him, and yeah. it seems it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's fascinating. really incredible. Yeah. Uh, mm. Well, okay, you've uh, you've told us you told us your scary story. <laughs> that was good. Um, let's talk about. Let's talk about uh, what is bushcraft. Yeah, so I would describe bushcraft at its in its most basic form as the knowledge of nature and mm-hmm. how to okay. inter- interact with it uh, okay. uh, on a personal level. That can mean a lot of different things, though. Some people look at it in terms of survival skills. That's what I was going right? to say. I would I would yeah, have thought it. Most would be people like... think about you know uh, things like that. Um, other people have a spin on it a little bit different, um, maybe like ancestral knowledge, you know, okay. so early people or first peoples uh, type knowledge. So some people um, focus on a specific skill set, maybe that was uh, more common to a particular Native American group of people or something like okay. that. But these days, you know, most people, I think, just have a general interest in like, you know, how to kind of know more and need less, I guess you could think of it. Now, that's, um, a, that's a key part of it, though, because I'm trying to find the difference in, like, what somebody would call bushcraft and what we would call going on a five-day backpacking trip exactly. in the mountains. Like, yeah. because you're talking about using less, you're talking, bushcraft would be like, Starting a fire without any kind of yes, and the, ignition source. Well, and it gets that's where it gets tricky, right? Because some people would be would consider carrying like a uh, a magnesium fire steel and using the spine of your knife. Like that's still bushcraft because what you did was you went to an eastern red cedar tree, you scraped off a bunch of bark, and you created tinder from that. So there's still an element of yeah. knowledge and nature and how to harness that and harvest it and those types of things. But on its it's more uh, 
kind of pure level, I guess you could say, um, you're going to go out and you're going to harvest um, a, uh, you know, a, a mullein stock, and then you're going to go get a piece of cottonwood for a hearth board, and you're going to create a hand drill. Mullein stock, is that a type of tree or it's shrub? It's a plant, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, mullein is a, uh, is a, a, a uh, it's a plant. It has a large basal rosette at the bottom. It's a it's a medicinal plant as well. It's there's a handful, well more than a handful, but there's a lot of different plants that can provide you with uh, multiple types of resources. So mullein, like the leaves are real soft and fuzzy. A lot of people think it's lamb's ear, but it actually gets much Does bigger. It grow here in Arkansas? Yeah, it grows all over the place here in Arkansas. Really? If we went out and walked around, we'd probably find some. Really? Um, but the leaves get quite large, and they grow in a round basal rosette. Um, and that, uh, if you dry it, you can make tea with it. It's good for respiratory ailments and things like that. Um, it actually makes great toilet paper if you need it for that use. In <laughs> fact, it's got a nickname, cowboy toilet paper, because it's, so- <laughs> it's real soft. Huh. Um, but the stalk that it puts up um, can get quite high, and it has a cone of yellow flowers at the top of it. And mm. when it dries, it becomes very woody. You know, it's soft and, and uh, it bends too easy when it's green and it's got too much moisture in it. But as it dries, you can cut that down. Um, and that's your hand drill or your spindle um, okay. that you would use. And then you need a hearth board. So you could find uh, something like uh, locally Umbrella Magnolia would be a good source. Uh, Cottonwood is one of my favorite ones, but there's many things you could use. And um, so you need uh, particular types of material that you – it's less important that you know what species you're looking for and more important that you understand the characteristics that are needed to make it work properly. So I know, you know, from doing – from having a lot of experience doing that type of thing, I need woods that are low density because if it's too hard, it's going to require too much pressure and speed in order to to bring the temperature up where I need it to get it to ignite, right? So that's one thing. Obviously, you need very low moisture content. If there's a lot of moisture in it, you're just going to be fighting you the whole time. And you need low resin content because if there's a lot of resin in it when you're starting to do it, it's going to kind of gum it up a little bit. So you don't want to use real sappy woods for that type of thing. So, you know, lots of different things can work, but it's just having that knowledge and understanding of, you know, what I need to get it done. So um, that would be one example of bushcraft that I think will paint a picture for you know what we're talking about. Yep, exactly. What, what else? Like like um, like navigation, absolutely without technology, yeah, that I mean, kind of stuff. And again, that, that runs the gamut. You know, nowadays, you know, most of us are walking around with some kind of phone in our pocket, and we got Onyx on there, right? And that's yeah. a great tool. I use it myself. I recommend it. Well, if you want to take wait that, a minute, you're you're pack rat bushcraft on Instagram. You can't have on X. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, I'm kidding. On the situation, I'm going to use whatever I can. And it, and it again, it comes down to like, what are you doing out there? Like, can I navigate by the stars? Yeah, I know I can do some of it. Um, but what am I out here to do? Am I out here to spend my time learning navigation or am I out here trying to get after an animal, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Well, yeah. I want to spend my time trying to track this animal down and harvest it. So, yeah, yeah I could do, you know, navigation by hand, right, right. but I would rather spend my time in other ways. And so yeah. a good example, you know, kind of happy medium, and one of the things at Packrat that I teach classes on 
his old school navigation skills with a regular compass and a topographical map. Right, and right. that's that to me has a very appropriate place um, in, in a sportsman's toolkit because a uh, compass and a map don't require any power. You know, yeah. your iPhone runs out of batteries unless you've got a battery backup or something like that. At that point, it's paperweight, right? Yeah. So, you know, knowing how to uh, use terrain association, read a topographical map and orient that map with a compass so that you can keep yourself, you know, where you need to be. Yeah. Um, those are good examples of what I would definitely classify as bushcraft skills. How long would it take you to start a fire if we walked outside? Oh, who knows? I don't know what's out there. I haven't looked around yet. I mean, if I got real lucky, I might be able to do it in half hour. But, okay, really? Yeah, I mean, but that I, that would require some Could luck. you start a fire? Okay, if I, if I, if, if you were with me 10 times, and you had a 30-minute window each of those 10 times in different environments here in Arkansas. How many times would you be able to start a fire in 30 minutes? In 30 minutes? Oh. I mean, is it like a for-sure deal? I mean, it's like... No. There's so many variables, okay? So time of year. What like has the drill dry. I mean, I could probably start a fire out there right, by clapping right. two rocks exactly. together and that right was now. my next thing. What has the weather been like? I mean, um, has it rained? So there, there's nothing that is... I guess what I'm getting at is like, how did native peoples or backwoodsmen that had sure. none of our modern yep. technology, I mean, did they just go long periods of time without fire because they couldn't start a fire? Sure, certainly. At or, times. Is there, or is there a bushcraft way that's just like almost 100%? Um, there is, but again, even within those primitive skills and bushcraft and things like that, they still had toolkits, right? So if I'm going to spend the time to craft a fire kit and like, I mean, right now, if you want, I got one in my truck and it's a good kit. I know mm. like if, if I were to use that, I can have a fire in 10 minutes. He carries you know? it around in case he wants to start a barbecue so, or something. There you go. Right. Um, <laughs> but, um, if I have to go out into the woods, there's just so many variables when it comes to harvesting, and you may, may be you know. so it, with your fire kit though you could you could start a fire ten predictably minutes. yes if okay. it's a good fire so kit, you could right. so if if we were just out <clears throat> here and it was sixteen hundred and we were trying to get yep. from here to oklahoma and but the difference is is that that is a toolkit that I crafted by hand from my knowledge of the environment and how to use it right yeah whereas in, instead of you know, carrying a big lighter in my pocket. And again, I'm not here to knock anyone that does that. In fact, I would encourage you to do that because yeah. it's smart. You're prepared, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the other the other way to look at it and the way that I think about it, because I love sharing these skills and teaching these skills, um, but I do it less because I think that you're going to need it as, as a survival skill one day. Like, right. I hope that never happens to anybody. I hope no one's ever on a hunting trip and it goes south on you. That and, bad. Yeah. Yeah. But what I can guarantee is that if I, if we, I have a class and you come and you learn how to do a bow drill or hand drill fire, the first time you're on your own and you make a campfire with that method, you will never enjoy a campfire as yeah, much as that one I that you that. made that mm-hmm. way because it enriched yeah. your experience and you are more connected to the land around you and, and, and your understanding of how to look after yourself. Yeah. And that is why I like to do it. And that yeah. for me is why I have gone down this path of studying these skills is because uh, I, I just enjoy my time out there that much more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I really like that. And I, I think... You know, it's kind of ironic in a way, like if you were to, you know, 
we have this thing in us. I have this thing in me where I I, I love hunting because it connects me to exactly. something like right. this primitive human experience. Yep. Uh, in a modern time, right? If you were to, if we could go back and talk to some primitive human hunters at some point and say, "Hey, there's going to be some hunters in the future that won't know how to start fires the way you do." I mean, like they would probably be surprised at that. I do not know how to start a fire. I mean, I I might sure. bumble around. I mean, I know the concept of starting right, a fire right, without right. a big lighter. Sure, but in general, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. A lot of hunters wouldn't be familiar with, and and obviously it's a, right. it's a utilitarian issue. It's like we're focusing on different aspects of our mission, like absolutely. But I think what you're saying is a really valid point. That just the the knowledge of these things, uh, like how to start a fire, adds value and adds a depth to it does. the experience. And fire, you know, there, I've got a book right up there called Catching Fire. Uh-huh. Fascinating book. Uh, some and it and uh, the whole premise of it is is that fire is actually what um, helped humans, you know, become what we are because oh, of yeah. cooked food. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Yeah, you know? and and uh, it yeah. it's pretty fascinating. And so, like our connection to fire, and then the fact that. Clay Newcomb really doesn't know how or isn't prepared to start a fire without technology. It's kind of hypocritical almost, you know? Well, again, it's, it just comes down to what you got time for, yeah. right? I mean, and first you know, world problem. Right. I you read uh, somewhere with, um, and one of the books I was reading, heck, it was in that book, Catching Fire. Uh, they were talking about how these African tribes would carry around uh, basically fire embers. Yeah, for days so at a time. Yeah. When they moved, they would like carry yep. a stick, yep. a smoldering stick. So yeah, so, so they like, wouldn't have to start a new fire. Yeah, so like in North America, that's commonly called an Apache match. Okay, okay, and so like um, and there's obviously it depends on where you go. They got a different name for it, right? But the concept's the same. Where you remove embers from the fire and you put um, some punk wood or something that will smolder for long periods of time, and you wrap that in a container, which will often be bark or grasses or something. Um, and then at that point, you can basically just like sometimes you can swing it through the air. You just want to keep enough oxygen in that thing so that those embers continue to smolder. But you can walk for miles with something like that, and then when start it. New fire when you get there, and it's much more uh, or much less uh, energy required to do so, right? Because if I have to get my my kid out again and, and expend a bunch of energy and effort into creating an ember, um, and depending upon what conditions are, that's going to be a lot more uh, just effort exerted, right? And yeah. if I've already got these embers, now all I need is tender, and I put those, and I can blow it back into flame. Yeah. So yeah. again, it's really just cool. just back to fundamentals in terms of knowledge of nature and how to use resources around you. Yeah. Well, um, something <clears throat> that I think you're known for, especially on your Instagram page, what I see all the time and think is cool, and 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 I have some knowledge of flint napping, but uh-huh. you do a lot of flint napping and making stone projectile points that you're hunting with. I do. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely become a passion of mine. Where did you learn that? So I first got interested in it in probably about 1997. And I, uh, my first year of college, I moved to East Tennessee and I went to University of Tennessee and uh, mainly because I was a kid and I just wanted to leave home. You know what I mean? I yeah. just wanted to get out and do something yeah. different. 
And for no other reason than because it sounded interesting, I took a class called prehistoric archaeology. And I I had no... It changed your life, didn't it? It changed my life. Yeah. Um, I had no idea who my professor was going to be, but it turned out it was a guy named Jan Schimmick. And he's like a world-class archaeologist. He Mm. goes to France and excavates Neanderthal uh, graves and that that type of thing. Fascinating guy. And he was showing these images uh, of, you know, various levels of early man uh, creating these stone tools. And, of course, I knew about airheads and stuff at that point, but I never knew how they were made until that point. And, um, you know, I got really interested in it, and I started trying to learn on my own. But, of course, back then, you know, there wasn't hardly any internet, let alone, you know, YouTube and stuff where you can go learn how to do this stuff. So I fumbled around for a while and and wasn't any good at it. And I tried it, you know, on and off for probably a year or two. Um, And then I kind of put it down for a while. And of course I was in college, you get into whatever you get into. Right. And um, when I, uh, when I decided, so fast forward a little ahead, a little bit of time, you know, I, I, uh, well, I guess first go back, I started learning how to shoot a bow when I was probably about nine years old. Okay. My dad gave me a compound bow, and I was shooting it instinctively okay. with no release, no sights okay. or anything. Ted Nugent so, style. Exa- totally, <laughs> totally. Um, and so I hunted that way you know, quite a bit through high school and stuff, oh, with firearms as well, but, but that way. And then um, put the bow down for a while while I was in, in college. Well, to near the end of college, I decided I want to start bow hunting again. And when I picked a bow up again is when I started having an interest in like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was, you know, flint napping and that sort of thing. And, again, I kind of messed around with it on and off for a while. But about four or five years ago, um, partially because, you know, uh, of uh, life changes and things, uh, I've got a couple kids and family so and all that. you couldn't afford broadheads. I could, well, I, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't be kidding. gone as much, right? I couldn't be gone on these expeditions yeah, and yeah. these things. I needed to find things that um, I was interested in but that I could do in, at, at yeah, home, you know, sense. in proximity. So that's when I, I really started investing a lot more time in these primitive skills. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I asked myself, I was like, well, are you going to keep fooling around with this or are you going to commit and learn how to do it? Because they'll, mm. that's what it is. It's committing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's like anything in life. Yeah. What do you want to be good at? Until you commit, you're never going to reach your potential. Yeah. And so um, th- that's what I did was I was like, okay, um, I either need to put to this, this away or I need to do it. And so at that point, it was just like everyone I could talk to, everything I could read, everything I could watch. And, um, you know, and I still, not, and I don't mean to, act like I'm an expert by any means because I still have, I mean, so much to learn. Uh, There's really no end to, uh, you you know, what you can learn when it comes to creating stone tools. And there's all kinds of different technologies and ways that you can go about doing it. But what I have kind of come to um, kind of, I guess if you want to say specialize in, is creating, uh, you know, simple stone arrowheads for the purpose of, bow hunting with yeah. them, you know, yeah. uh, some people get into making knife blades and I've done a little bit of that, but predominantly, um, you know, I'm trying to recreate functional points that, you know, that I can actually carry out. Well, you make some animals. beautiful stuff. Thank you very much. You I really do. It. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, it's just an endless, uh, source of fascination for me. You know, what you just said, I, I like what you did there as a, as a life strategy. You went into a new season of life. So you were this like adventure, like travel, traveling all over the world in some cases. Yeah. And then you 
had a family and had right. little kids, couldn't couldn't do that, as much of that stuff. Yep. And so you started dedicating yourself to some of this craft that you could learn at home. I, yep. I identify with that because I feel like inside of people there is this like there's this like space that we want to fill up with and for us and for the people listening to this podcast, probably want to fill up with outdoor adventure related, Absolutely. just, you know, something inside of that field. And I find that you don't always have to fill it with the most exciting, crazy extreme of what you're interested in to fulfill that thing inside of you. That's right. I mean, like, um, and I've got some examples in my life of similar things when it's like, I know I can't go do that, but I can do this right. and find real satisfaction totally. in doing this thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, for some guys it's reloading ammunition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, for, for other guys it's, it's, it's tying flies. Yeah. You know, I mean, you I think can, for a lot of guys it's shooting bows, you know, in the outdoor industry, there's so much emphasis on uh, like you scroll through Instagram, Facebook and all these influential hunters and non you know, just yeah. hunters like they're shooting their bow, shooting their bow, shooting their bow, shooting their bow. Oh, it's great to shoot your bow. I think people use that as a tool to just fill up that space inside oh, of them. Because no you don't, you don't have to. I'm going to get known as the guy that says you don't have to <laughs> practice with your bow. I'm okay with that. You don't have to practice that much to be able to kill a deer at 20 yards, right? You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. But I, but I think, and and then it kind of becomes like this major, major, massive focus, like hitting a high played at 20 yards with a compound bow is not the limiting factor mm-hmm. of hunting. No. It's awesome that we like to shoot right. and that becomes something right. that we like dial in. And there are certainly Western guys that are shooting animals at longer distance oh, and, yeah. and are, are going to kill more game because they're good shooters. Right. Most yeah. of the time, not though. Yeah, yeah. That, Irrelevant, but I, I like what you said there because I can identify with like dialing yeah. in to something a little bit different. But that's building your repertoire of of functionality yeah. you know and i don't want to create the image that i like i'm i'm not walking out in the woods with oh, I, nothing yeah, yeah, and yeah. building my arrows out there and then mm-hmm. hunting you know what i mean like that's a whole other thing i mean uh I, I have done some extended trips where i have i have walked out into the uh you know, what I would say very remote wilderness and carried very, you know, no modern camping gear. I've gone out on trips with stone tools and uh, things like that and, and tried to hunt. And I can tell you right now, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. If you think you're going to go wow. out there and do it, um, you know. You know what, with the with the backdrop of our modern lives, I think it's almost impossible to really replicate the drive and yeah. the necessity of living that way. Like we could we could it's go tough. out and think that we could replicate exactly what it would be like to be a Native American and have no choice right. but to survive out there. But it is impossible to replicate that because yeah. we always have a backdrop. There's always something going on. Yeah. Well, the, or the, the, there's always, I mean. A fallback plan. It, yeah. I mean, unless there was somebody that said, literally, I will go in the woods and die. Like yeah. I'm not walking back to the truck. I mean, and nobody, yeah. nobody says that. No, no one does. And, and I, you know, I've tried to push it pretty hard. I mean, I've done things where I lost over 20 pounds. Really? Yeah. Where I, on backcountry trips, cause I was trying to do that exact thing. Mm. And, mm. uh, you know, you, you walk out a little later looking like you were in a prison camp for a while, you know, and yeah. most people that's not very appealing. That's not <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. like a lot of fun, but you know, if you, you know, you don't know what you're capable of unless you pull the trigger sometimes yeah you gotta figure it out for yourself that's cool man okay flint napping i want to talk a little bit more give it give us a just a 
like a short description of like how you would take like what kind of material yeah, you use so and how absolutely. how you would how you would yeah. Nap so it, we're like. working we're working with what most people call flint, but that can end up being it's some type of rock that fractures predictably through something called a Hertzian cone, and so glass will do that. You can use modern glass because it's an amorphous material. What it's kind of same. rock is it? Is it a? It's a metamorphic or uh, igneous? Well, it, would it, it be a metamorphic be, rock? It, yeah, it can be like so. For example. Um, you know, you've got obsidian, right? Like that was a very uh, classic one that Native Americans would have mined from volcanic areas, right? You've got stuff like that. But then you also have like down in Texas, there's many, many different types of chert that occur down there. So you have things like Pedernales chert and Georgetown and a lot of these. And this is this is a smooth rock. It's a very that would smooth almost be rock. Like and it, porcelain the key, or something. The key thing about it is it fractures predictably. That's okay. what you have to have. You can't use sandstone. You, you know, you're not using sedimentary rocks really of any kind that I'm aware yeah. of. So they've got to be heated ahead of time because that creates this crystalline structure within the stone that is needed in order to predict how the stone is going okay. to to flake. What would they? So up here, like, like right in this particular area, I don't think there's. Yeah. So there, there is some chert around here for sure that, that you, you could nap. Use. Yeah, that you could nap. But the thing is, is, it's really coarse grained. The coarser the grain it is, the harder the stone is to work. Okay. So north of here, there are some bands of chert, and within Arkansas, I mean, we have we have. Uh, what is it called? Uh, Pitkin. Pitkin. Um, yeah. Over you have Crowley's Ridge. There's some chert over there that's pretty good. And then on up into Missouri, there's some actually world class uh, types of chert up there that people uh, really like. Um, and I, again, a, another good classic example is like I. That's one thing I'm very interested in is and personally is learning more about our local okay uh, types of chert and flint that we have. But it goes back again, like I think I mentioned already, is like how do you want to spend your time? Do you want to spend your time looking for the stuff, or do you want to spend your time making airheads? Yeah, yeah. And for me. You know, I wish my knowledge was better in terms of what is locally available, but I'd rather just learn more about making airheads. At least yeah. at this point, yeah, you yeah. know, I'm still learning in that. So um, lots of times I trade for stone or I'll even, there's places online you can buy it if you want to. And I have, yeah. you know, uh, gone around even just around here and I've gotten into a habit where you pick up a piece of stone, you take another rock and you strike it. And based upon how it breaks, you can determine pretty quickly if if it is a good candidate to try to make a point out of. Okay. Um, and it just takes some time to recognize that. But from there, um, you've got to have a toolkit, right? And so there's right. different types of percussion in the way that you strike the surface of the stone. Is it called percussion stone. napping? Is that what it's called? Yeah, so there's different kinds uh, of percussion. You have hard hammer and soft hammer percussion. So example of hard hammer would be pick up a rock, hit it with another rock, right? Okay. So soft hammer would be using antler. Or okay. corn or something like that. Yeah. And uh, so, or even wood in some cases, although that's that's much less common. And so um, you have direct percussion where I'm holding the stone in one hand and I strike it with an antler on the other hand. And you have indirect percussion. Um, and that's where you have like a piece of antler that, you know, you're balancing the, the stone on your leg. You have another piece of antler that you're holding at a particular angle. Okay. And then you strike that antler with another antler. I that's see. indirect percussion. Got it. And 
you, you started to see kind of a resurgence, uh, especially if you want to jump in the circles of flint napping on, on Instagram and all that type of stuff. You see a lot of guys doing that stuff because in, on, to some degree it gives you a higher level of control. In the terms indirect of, percussion. Yeah, because of the angle that you can control a little bit better. Um, I see. But it does require a little bit more tools. So you're, you're taking a – if you were trying to make a, a point the size of an arrowhead, which most people would – understand you know something like sure. under two inches yep, long exactly. maybe and maybe an inch and a half inch wide yep. like how big of a rock would you have to start with so Piece of flint. it depends but oftentimes what you do is you'll 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 start with a large stone if, if you have it and you'll knock off what's called a spall or a fl- or a large flake okay and so first you remove a large flake from that piece and that large flake you know ideally if you're starting out with something is maybe going to be you know somewhere four to six inches Okay. Uh, and thin, ideally, yes. because the thinner you start with, the easier it is to get to an arrowhead. Yeah. Um, if you start with something that with a big hump on it with, that we often refer to as a turtle back, that's a problem you got to deal with. And so you're okay. just setting yourself up to be challenged. So a nice thin uh, flake or a spall. Then from there, you'll use one of these percussion methods to whittle that thing down to a point uh, or to the shape of something that you feel like is close to what you're after. Then the next stage that you'll move on to is pressure flaking. And that's okay. what many people are familiar with. Modern people uh, or modern flint nappers tend to use copper pressure flakers. And there is definitely uh, evidence that native peoples also actually smelted copper and used copper tips to oh, really? flake points. Yeah, mm. that, that, you know, we don't have a whole lot of research about that, but I have read things that, that, that prove um, that even when even when they had the abilities to create copper tools, um, their skills were so much more refined at making stone tools, and it was so hard to smelt that copper that they realized that if they could just get a little bit of copper, they were way more efficient at making stone tools with it. Mm. And so, um, but traditionally, what people think about is uh, tips of antler, and that's often referred to as abo or aboriginal napping. And okay. so if you want to do it, you know, because, and again, just like anything you're so into. what was the first stage when you're just banging out the, the kind of general shape of the that's head? That's percussion. Okay, yeah. and then. And then, then you move to pressure flaking. So percussion. Yep. And then pressure flaking. And pressure and, flaking is where you're putting that serrated edge uh, on the actual stone point itself, you know. And so the 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 stone, the, the, the way the stone flakes you can you can put pressure yeah put it on your leg yep you can either hold it in your hand or you, yeah correct you need something to protect yourself otherwise you're driving these razor sharp micro flakes into your hand or what or into your leg and so yes typically you use a piece of leather uh to protect yourself and then you're either holding it in your hand or pushing it on your thigh or you're above your knee on your leg and you're t- applying pressure at a particular angle with the flaking tool whether that's copper tip, yes. really small exactly. fine tip like it could be copper could be the yep. tip of an antler exactly popping it down yep and, and flaking it off. Yep. And, and in order to create uh, a nice smooth point, you need to be able to run flakes at least halfway across. Because if you can't get halfway across on what each side, so like let's say we have an arrowhead, right? So yeah. an arrowhead like this, and I'm driving flakes on this side, and I'm driving flakes on this side. Well, if they don't overlap slightly, oh, you're going to end up with this middle part that doesn't get uh, flaked away. And so it's we not going to be the right shape. Blades, there you it? go. <laughs> the problem is though, is that part is going to be. It, it's it gonna, won't be sharp. It won't be sharp, and it's going to. Uh, 
there's resistance there, right? Yeah, when yeah. it enters, yeah, uh, yeah. So the that's wound. a problem. Exactly, it's problematic. So you want to make sure that um, those flakes are, are, and it's it may it's a lot easier to understand when you see it, right? Than yeah. Explaining it, um, but as you whittle these things down or chip them down, um, you end up with something hopefully that's generally pretty symmetrical. And right. I mean, and they're razor sharp. I mean, there's no question. That was my next question. Is okay when I first started messing around with flint points. Um, I spent a, a year or two hunting with them. Yeah. And uh, my question, and I never even shot at an animal with one. Uh-huh. Like, just, I didn't commit the whole season, so it would be like I was picking and choosing when I was bringing the, the flint point. Yep. And it just seemed like every time I chose not to bring it, that's when I'd get a shot of at an animal. When I brought it, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. My thing was, like, how effective of a killing tool is this uh it's very i mean you know you can look at it a few different ways one is you know modern in modern times anyway we still have to look at like how ethical is it to hunt with a tool like that and so you know it needs to be razor sharp and if it's not it's it's not appropriate when i say razor sharp it you know, it's it's con- contradictory in some ways because modern broadheads are not serrated, right? Yeah. They're like a knife blade. Yeah. Or, but I guess that's not a good example either because a knife can be serrated. But it's like a razor edge, yeah, like yeah, literally, yeah. right? And, you know, I for me, if I'm hunting with a steel broadhead, I need to be able to slice paper with that thing. And if I can, it's not sharp enough. Yeah. Well, you can't use the same measuring stick for a stone point. Um, because it doesn't work the same way as a regular broadhead. Okay. A regular broadhead will slice through flesh very cleanly. In contrast to that, a stone point has these micro edges. They'll cut literally. It's a serration that comes to a tip along because the of side. The napping. Exactly, because and of it, the percussion and it flaking. will it will it tears flesh. Uh, rather than kind of cutting through it as it moves okay. through. So the two components that a stone point needs in order to be functionally appropriate, at least in, in my mind, is the tip needs to be like a needle. It okay. needs to be razor sharp. Because it's got a your entry point. Exactly. Once it, you get that exactly. initial cut. Yep. So that's the first characteristic that it's got to have. The next thing is that it, those serrations, the tips of those serrations. I mean, if I take one of mine and I just drag it quickly across my hand, it's going to cut my hand open. Mm. And if you can't do that, then it's not sharp enough to hunt with. Okay. And so, um, you know, it, it takes time definitely to get them to the point where, and that does, I'm not saying you couldn't kill a deer with a one that wasn't that yeah. sharp, but it's just simply not going to perform as well. And I think, you know, in, if we're talking about a Native American a thousand years ago, they, uh, I'm not here to say whether or not I know anything about what their ethics were back then, right? Their ethics were they needed to eat yes. and they were going to do whatever so they, they were, needed to do. They were motivated from a a little bit different direction. Exactly. And they would have taken shots that we simply wouldn't take today as ethical hunters simply because, you know. Their life depended on Exactly. Just like ours would if our life depended on us every time we hunted. Precisely. You know, so, yeah, I'm not going to take a gut shot on on an animal knowingly, but I, I feel almost confident that they would have because they were trying to eat and yeah. uh, or they had to eat. And so, uh, but having said that, you know, if you're going to do something like that, um, there are still considerations, you know, that you have to take. But, you know, properly prepared stone point, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, if it's placed Incredible. in the vitals. Well, when you think about, uh, when you think about the breadth of human history, I mean, 
humans have been surviving a shorter amount of time using modern technologies for dispatching animals exactly. than they had using stone points. Yeah. I mean, humanity and was built on the back of a stone point. And so that's it why it's, that's why it's bizarre. That's why it's ironic that like we would even be having a discussion about whether this is ethical. It is. I mean, yeah, I, I, no, I, I'm you're, all you're for exactly the conversation, right. but like the, the, the people that would say it's unethical, I would just say, man, why don't you go back and study a little bit of human history? Well, and the other thing that to me, to sort of flip that on its head in a way that's so interesting is there are more people flint napping right now than there have been in probably a thousand years and it's crazy as it is it's because of instagram it's because Mm. of all of youtube it's because of all these you know resources so you know i'm definitely one of these guys that to some degree that falls in the camp of like you know our internet's this double-edged sword right yeah like there's so much junk out there and there's there's a lot of negative that comes whether or not it's, it's something as simple as staring into a screen all day for a kid or just all this negativism right that comes from whether in whatever form that takes but there's this other side where you know you have this community that is in and i don't care what your thing is there's a community out there for it you know online that that are sharing skills and doing that and that's the cool part and because of that, you know, there are a lot of resources that up until very recently, the last few years, you know, would not, not have been available to people. And so, you know, um, the, when you think about the communication, we, we bought this book the other day, uh, this Foxfire book. Those You've are heard great. of these? Oh, yeah, I've got Man, some of them. The, this would have been the way to preserve yeah. yes. these like ancient technologies. Absolutely. Man, communication, modern video. Like all this stuff is revolutionized the human experience yep. to something that we don't even know what direction it's going. No, I mean yeah. it's bizarre because like yeah, you can you didn't have to know a Native American. You didn't right. have to know somebody that Right. I mean, you went on the internet and learned how to nap. Yeah, exactly. You know, and of course there that still doesn't take the place of having a very experienced person show you. Yeah. And, and I don't want to, you know, uh, create that um, or have that misconception there because there's no exception for a good teacher or someone that has sure, hands-on sure. skill. And, and that's across the board, whatever you're into. Um, but unfortunately for me, you know, there kind of wasn't anybody around me that could show me. So I just kind of had to figure You'd it out. And of course, out. a lot of it's just trial and error. I mean, Anyone that get, wants to get into flint napping, I'm like, okay, well, uh, you're going to basically pulverize a couple hundred pounds of rocks and turn them into dust, and you're going to get real frustrated. And then at some point, you're going to end up with something that's starting to look like an arrowhead. And then from there, you know, you're, it's just going to be slowly but surely. You'll keep on refining it. Man, right here, I'll show you when we're done. I've got a collection of, of stone points, uh-huh. many of which I've found on this property. Yeah, on your property, yeah. And you can see the difference in skill level. Oh yeah. And that's so fascinating to pick up a stone point. Like there's there's one up here that I could show you that like you just wonder you're like, man, I bet a 14-year-old boy exactly. made that one. <laughs> I've had and, really yeah, interesting discussions with people about like, you know, was this a beginner or was it a kid? You yeah, know, and yeah. then the other thing is is like I I've definitely um talked with people that are, are of the impression that like okay, if there's a, a tribe or a community of of uh, early people, you know, 
I feel like maybe there was one guy and he was the napper mm. and he's building points and tools for everybody and all the other guys are the hunters. You know what I mean? So it's kind of fun to think about, you know, like how, how, that, how that or versus up. like was each hunter, did he have his own style and his own? I think it, it's there's a lot of argument to say that's probably less likely because flint napping is very time consuming. Yeah. So to think that, you know, you're going to make all your own tools and all this stuff and then go hunting, sure, it's possible, no doubt about it. But I think there's a case to be made because there's no doubt that, like, some people just kind of get it. They just gravitate towards yeah, yeah, it, right? Yeah. And they're, um, there's, um, you know, locally, we have that up in Pentonville, we've got that Native American Museum. If you haven't that been up there. incredible. That, I've been is, there. That place is incredible. World class. One of the, and I don't know if it's still up there because I think it was on loan, but there's a tool up there that called the Sweetwater Biface. Mm. And it was found in Texas. And to my knowledge, no modern napper has been able to replicate this tool. Really? Um, What's it called? It's called the Sweetwater Biface. I'll have to look at that. Sweetwater Biface. There's a a ratio um, of width to thickness Mm. that uh, very skilled nappers uh, will try to emulate. And once you get so wide, you can only get so thin, right? Before it gets very difficult to do. And that particular face. Is among artifacts is world class. I mean, it's as good wow. as almost anything because the it's crazy wide. It's, I want to say it's like nineteen or or so millimeters wide, and it's like crazy thin. And it's just unbelievable that you know wh- whoever you, made you, it was. You a said master. Did you mean centimeters? Nineteen yes. centimeters. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. He had his fingers. I understood what you were yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, like three inches or something. Exactly. It's like three yeah, inches even, wide, but like paper thin. Exactly. Yeah, it's unbelievable when you look yeah, at yeah. it in profile. It, I mean, if you dropped it on this concrete floor, it would shatter into you know twenty wow. pieces. Wow! 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 Um, and it's a remarkable yeah. artifact. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating it is. stuff. Um, it is. You know, I. I I've got to say this uh, just because it, it's on my mind. All these points found in my front yard. Uh-huh. You know, I was uh, pretty heavily ridiculed uh, the other day online <laughs> oh, yeah. for uh, – did you see any of that? I, a little bit. Okay. I mean, there's no shortage of opinions out there, that's well, for sure. So I wrote an article uh-huh. for Meat Eater yeah. that was on uh, – yep. yep. that was called Six Tips for Finding Stone yes, Points. I do recall yeah. that. Yep. And, uh, man, I – so I just wrote these six tips for finding stone points, you know, right. I mean, just kind of like practical places to look. And we made mention early in the article about how, you know, you need to check your regulations because right. it, technically it's illegal to take it, basically yeah. anything off of public Any land. Any type of public land. That's right. It's illegal. And man, I was skewered. Yeah. With, with, uh, I had arc people like private messaging me. Yeah. Like just. People take that stuff very seriously. And. You know, what I was trying to say was, uh, you know, on private land where you have permission mm-hmm. to gather stone points, like there were people like trying to say that it would be have better for me to have left all these stone points in my front yard. Yeah. I mean, essentially, that's what they were saying. Right. What, but, but, and I realized it's one of these like mass communication kind of misses because what they were, what they were saying was that uh, I was encouraging people to loot archaeological sites. Right. Like, which was not at all your point. Zero my right, point. Right. It, it, even one person who I engaged with a little bit, he seemed like a normal guy. I was like, so you're telling me that you want me to call maybe the University of Arkansas 
to come out to my front yard and uh, set up an archaeological dig. Right. And uh, and I was like, man, there's not enough time, not enough money. There's more places that are better. So you want me to just leave my stone points in the front yard? And he was kind of like, you know. Right. He was kind of like, well, no, but. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, then that's what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about legal I'm not even necessarily talking about anyway. That's a whole yeah, different story, it but it's people get cranked up about it. To get down, and, yeah. and you know, you have to have to recognize that there's a lot of ways to look at that. And and you know, I, I think you tried to do your due diligence about you know doing things ethically and being responsible and that sort of thing. But everyone, you know, you ask ten people, you get ten different opinions, right? Yeah. And um, I, I certainly uh, am a proponent a of of not doing anything illegal in terms of removing points from yes. public land. And the other thing um, is being respectful to uh, first peoples in yeah. terms of you know. Yeah. But the the fact of the matter is, unless you're an archaeologist and you come in, you know, knowing at what point said stone point was made are we talking about a you know a uh, osage you know native american that lived in the ozarks several hundred years ago are we talking about an atlatl point that was from an early archaic period that no one knows you know even what current native americans might may or may not have been related to that individual right yeah and so you just open up this can of worms that there's kind of no answer to now that yeah. doesn't mean that we shouldn't be you know respectful to those first peoples you know that came and and traveled through this country um but at the same time it, it's a tricky subject well and i and i and i i didn't want to open up a can of worms because sure. i'm all for preservation of yep archaeological sites and, right. and respect. I mean, to me, those stone points sitting right there and me showing every person that comes in this office, yeah. that is like a massive Yeah, you're paying homage to those people that Absolutely. were here. Absolutely. I mean, you're Absolutely. showing those to your kids. You you show them to yeah. people, your guests, you know, that come in here and you're like, look at this amazing thing that I and found. These people. And I these, always bring right. it back to the people. Like exactly. I think about I think about the human you know, that touched this. Precisely. I know that's what everybody does. So anyway, that's totally off topic, but I had to bring that up because yep. I haven't, uh, uh, I haven't uh, publicly addressed that, but it's like, yeah, I'm <laughs> not for looting archeological sites or doing anything illegal. Right. But if I see a stone point in my front yard, I'm going to pick it up. Yep. Yeah. And I think, and I'm going to show and honor. I, to, and, and I think most people would, I mean, again, the, you know, not to sit here and talk about what's right or wrong, but, um, I mean, otherwise, how does anyone ever know about it? Right. You know what I mean? I mean, right. I guess if you could go look in a museum, but um, yeah. I don't know. There's, there's Well, what's wild to me is the, I wouldn't have known this till I started paying attention yeah. and looking on the ground, Right. Uh, is that, man, the, the Native American occupation was widespread across this continent. They were uh, everywhere. Ev- they were everywhere. And they were here yeah. for so long. Yeah, thousands I mean, of years. there's probably a stone point under the foundation of this building we're yeah. in right now. I mean, that no guaranteed. one I yeah. mean, just like something happened here. There was a human interaction here yep. that left evidence of a stone. I mean, it was just it was the way that they lived. That's right. And, you know. But now hey one last question on the napping. Okay. Have you have you taken an animal? Not with, with a stone, stone point. No. Okay. And, so still and, working and part on of that. part of the reason that I haven't is because I, I was not confident that my points were ready. Okay. And it and for me it, it very was very much an ethical uh, stone point. Now I have carried them with me, um, 
you know, just to sort of start getting the, the feel for it and everything. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, you better believe this ball. Uh, okay. I'm going to be carrying stone points. It's, it's time. time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, that's a great place to talk about. Like, so now we have this pretty good picture of, of who you are, like a mountaineer, well-traveled inside of that world. And then also a hunter. Um, what is the, like, man, like we live in a, area that's uh for arkansas is a pretty uh pretty wealthy area for arkansas i uh-huh. mean like uh like uh what am i trying to get at uh what 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 are the cultural divides between hunters and your and your outdoorsman that's a non-hunter i think a lot of it you know quite honestly comes down to a, a lack of knowledge or a miscommunication a lot of times you okay. know because there's sometimes an assumption, like, again, like, you know, my, the shop that I work at, you know, Packrat in Fayetteville, um, we sell technical equipment for hikers, climbers, canoeists, okay. those types of things. Um, we do now carry longbows, and, um, okay. and but it's for purposes of recreational archery. At this time, we're not necessarily promoting hunting. But I guess my point is, is that those are the types of folks, you know, traditionally that are coming right. in, you know, to the shop. Now, if a guy who normally doesn't do those things and he's a hunter but he's getting ready to go on a trip and he needs a camping stove and he's like oh well i can't get it at x or y hunting shop where i got my bow or where i bought my camo yeah but i'm gonna go down there to that shop because they sell that kind of stuff i have seen it there a lot of times is automatically like a uh they expect sometimes to be uh looked down upon a little yeah. bit yeah, or yeah. just like not understood. And, um, you know, certainly sometimes there is a lack of information, right. In terms of like what it is that you're actually doing when you're out there, because people that don't have a hunting background, um, they're just not educated in it. And sometimes, you know, they don't realize that some of the very best allies for conservations are hunters, right? Yeah. I mean, we all know that. Yeah. But from all they see is the killing, right? Yes. You know? Yes. And, and I'm sure you guys would probably also agree that there are plenty of hunters out there that go – do things that are not ethical. They right. they, they act that and they do the rest to of the, stero- the negative yeah. stereotype they of the do. redneck hunter. I mean, I've seen it time and time again, unfortunately, in Goshen, Arkansas, where I do a lot of my deer hunting. Guys will road hunt and they shoot a deer and they leave it laying there. And they mm-hmm. don't even bother to get the meat and they probably didn't have a hunting license. And there's nothing for me worse than, you know, seeing something like that. And that's but a poacher. That's a poacher. That's not a hunter. That's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they yeah. hunted, but they're, you know, they're not a, as far as I'm right, concerned, right, a hunter. Right. But the average person that is not a hunter doesn't, they don't know the difference, right? Or they haven't that's been right. educated. Or maybe some people do, right? But but a yeah, lot of yeah. people, they just see that and they're disgusted by it and there's a misconception there. So I think that, I guess in the end, um, I would say don't jump to conclusions or whatever you want to call okay. it in terms of like what others others people perception is of you and what you're doing because what I have seen I've got rock climber buddies that are crazy passionate turkey hunters I've got uh, people I know that uh, love to hike but they're also deer hunters and more often than not especially in some place like Arkansas yeah you know there's there's a heritage here. 
And and yeah. and and I think that there's a lot of other towns, small towns around the country, where there's a heritage here. Now, obviously, you get into more metropolitan areas, that starts to fade away. At least that's been yeah. my experience, right? Yeah. You know, you maybe you didn't have that uncle or that your grandpa or your brother, or whoever that sort of was doing that when you were growing up, and so you don't have any sense of of their ethics and um, what their life experiences were and how they handled themselves when it comes to, you know, harvesting and game animals. Um, but, you know, there's a whole lot more that connects us than separates us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I guess one thing I'd make kind of a shameless plug for is the BHA, um, yeah. which I'm involved Back in. Backcountry Hunters and yeah, Anglers Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And that's one of the reasons that I've gravitated to that group is I feel like they're a group that recognizes that. And they yeah. they recognize that, you know, everybody has a right to kind of recreate at least within the spectrum of doing it responsibly. Um, and as long as you're not damaging the environment or, you know, harvesting game animals, either illegally, illegal, exactly, whatever that looks like, um, you know, we all kind of have a right to be there. And I'm often, you know, surprised. I mean, sure. You got your diehard hunter guys and all they do is hunt and they don't do anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, and you have your diehard, whether it's road bikers or rock climbers or whatever, but most of us like to do multiple things. Yeah. And you don't have to get very far into a conversation to realize that we all just want to be outside doing things we love. You yeah. know what I mean? And so, um, you, you know, know I, I think a lot of it boils down to perceived identity. Like what yes. I see inside like the hiking, mountaineering, rock climbing world, yep. like what you feel when you go into like a high end outdoor store like Packer, uh -huh. is you feel this sense of like uh, I strong identity inside of yeah. this thing. Yep. Okay. When you go into a hunting store or when you go into, you know, you feel this identity. Yep. And, and that's where I think there's a bridge that can be built inside the extremes of both of those could be at odds with each other and the struggle of identity because like yeah. a like a like a mountaineer typically would be somebody that would be like aware of the environment and wanting like no trace left behind yep. like a bunch of these like great things yep and he <clears throat> might perceive or his worldview of a hunter might be that that's not what that hunter is right. that hunter is taking from this yes. Well, you know, when you when you really get down to the brass tacks and you don't view the extremes of the negative side of hunting, you realize that hey, wait a minute, there's a whole, a whole bunch of guys that are very conscientious, very conscientious Absolutely. about the environment, and, and and then when you understand the North American model of wildlife conservation and the funding of the Pittman Robertson Act and right. how that wild places and all this and, and wildlife conservation is funded by the dollars of hunting, then exactly. then you there is this like super overlap of people that enjoy wild places. And I think that it's uh there's probably a lot more room for the mountaineer, hunter, hiker, canoeer, just general outdoor person to step into hunting. I mean like oh, because, definitely. because yeah. and I guess what I wanna do and, and what I see you doing is that and what I see BHA doing better than anybody? Say what you want about BHA. Sure. Say that they're a liberal left wing whatever. Right, right. <laughs> Man, those guys are bringing in new hunters into our space. Yep. And that is what we need. 
And I just opened up a can of worms by saying that. Maybe we'll directly address that at some point. But, uh, man, the guys that I know that are in BHA are hardcore hunters. They're good hunters. They're 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 the real deal. They're me. Sure. They're you. Yep. They're Colby. Yep. That's uh, been my experience. And again, it's not. I'm not going to sit here and act, you know. I know a tiny percentage of them. Right. But I, uh, you know, I can only speak from what you know. My, what I'd like to see moving forward in terms of like for the health of hunting. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I guess another component that I've noticed is more and more young people are starting to be aware of where their food comes from, what yep. that looks like. And I know a lot of people that a, a hunter would very easily call a tree hugger or like a granola yep. kind yep. of person, yep. right? And That's kind of that social odds yeah, thing. That like, and, but that person, you know, the, I can think of a handful of, of acquaintances that I have right now. That person, they don't hunt, they don't want to hunt, but they would rather see a person go and ethically harvest a deer or an antelope or whatever it may be and feed their family that way than go to, you know, X or Y big supermarket and buy a piece of beef that was came from a stockyard that was pumped full of hormones right, and all right, this right. other stuff because they understand that in the big picture it's better for all of us. It's better for the planet. Yeah. You know, when it when things happen that way. And it's it's I mean you can't really argue that that's not a more natural course of action. Yes. You know, right. And, um, you know, just this one thing, like when we eat deer meat at my house, I talk to my kids about where this meat came from and, you know, why, you know, we're choosing to eat it. And yes, an animal had to die, but because that animal died, it's feeding us and it's just a big circle, right? It comes back around into itself again. And so, um, uh, you know, I can only have just so far of a reach and for me, my kids is, is kind of where I start that at. Yeah. But, you know, but even with friends and, and other folks, you know, I, I, I've been really pleased to see a, a number of people that have, I've reached through the archery side of things that have been like, you know what, I'm not sure if I want to hunt, but shooting a bow looks pretty cool, but yeah. it's not very far into shooting the a next, bow. The next that step. it's like, well, so tell me about this deer hunting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Man, that's, and, that's what we've got to do. We've got to find a way to build cultural bridges and it's 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 human to human interaction it's it's finding a way to be who we are but not be stiff arming some group that ought to be on our side and i think we can do that through um i mean i don't know we we've just we've we've got to be we've got to be better at at our narrative it it's you know? crazy, and I, I, I feel like I say this a lot for to people that are close to me, and it sounds oversimplified, but I don't know how else to say it. And literally, it just comes down to like a simple definition of respect. And it, respect just means like being aware and, and to some degree kind of honoring someone else's traditions and, you know, what their life is about and simply not immediately assuming that you're not going to agree with that person because they don't do the things that you do, right? Yeah. And so oftentimes, I mean, it's time consuming to have a conversation, especially if you do it on, uh, you know, with an individual. But that's the negative side to all of this social media and internet stuff that we've got because it's created the keyboard warrior, right? Yes. It's real easy to take cheap shots at people when you're sitting in your living room uh, behind your computer screen, and it drives me crazy. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Because And there's plenty of folks out there that could probably care less about what you're actually talking about, but they just jump in there and make a negative to- comment, stir the pot up, and then yeah. they get out, right? Yeah. And then the, it starts to erode from there. Um, so it's not convenient, and it isn't easy, but I guess, you know, to the limit of my influence as an individual, I would just tell people, like, before you make your initial assessment on a person for something they said or something they did or they don't look like you or whatever, just like maybe take a second and consider, you know, what their angle was and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, again, I really do think that when people like actually stop, we're all just humans. We all need the same stuff, you know, and you're, of course, you're always going to have fringe people that are morons. You know, we all know that. You're always going to have... There, the world is... <laughs> Got to calculate for the morons. You do. I mean, there, those people are out there, and, I, and I'm not saying that there aren't, because some people, a lot of times, people just fly wrong. But um, at the same time, most of us can find common ground. Yeah. And I think that's a skill that we have gotten you away know, from. Here's a phrase that I've been hearing come up in, in a couple of... Often, uh, and I think it's a term that sociologists would use. Maybe it's kind of a not slang, but but tribalism. Uh-huh. Like tribalism could be Definitely. described. I mean, we we would find it in modern society. And basically, my wife described this to me the other day. Tribalism is a mentality that says there's us and then there's them. Yeah, it's that simple. Yeah, yeah. And and the the politically charged environment that we live in, right, is pushing people deeper and deeper into tribalism. Yeah. And tribalism is, and, and the phrase tribalism has nothing to do with like native culture. Right, like, right. like when no. we when we hear that word, sometimes we like go back in history. That's yep. not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about like sociological or like just like default ways that humans segregate themselves. Right. You know, and uh, I mean, it could be in a room of ten people, and you leave them in there for two hours, and you'll find that there's groups that begin to form. Yep. yep, yep. And like. Um, and so generally, when it comes to solving problems, tribalism is negative. Sure. And so like, I look at it like that, and man, I'm guilty. I mean, like, I think it, and thinking are. about the, the outdoor, like the, you know, kind of like thinking about the, the outdoor guy, you know, it's like, I think he's different than me. Right. He goes to the mountains, yep. but he's different than me. Yep. He probably doesn't understand me. He probably is judging me because I'm a hunter. Yep. He probably thinks I'm a barbarian. Like all these things like reinforce my bias. And really when I met you and see, I didn't know. I mean, even up until a month ago, I didn't know that you were involved with pack rat. And and for those who wouldn't, I mean, pack rat is like the place for mountaineering client is a beautiful, awesome store. And so like, it's kind of like, I've known that for, ever since I've been in Fayetteville, like I would have been like, Man, Packer's really not my my, and a my lot dig. Of, a lot of people feel that way. Well, and they it's don't crazy. Know yeah. yeah. And then I meet you and I'm like, oh man, here's this guy who is deep inside of all this adventure sports and stuff. And I thought those people I mean, I'm I'm just confessing. I would sure. have thought that those people would not have tipped their hat to the hunting world. Yep. And and I think it's I think it's uh it's both of us kind of drop dropping that tribalism in a way yeah. and, and finding ways to be inclusive. And that's what, you know, 
Uh, yeah, it, I, I think you're exactly right. And uh, I mean, quite frankly, I don't see a way around solving a lot of modern problems we have in life unless we look at it that way. Yeah, we have to learn how to have conversations with uh, with each other and not get worked up about it. Like that so much and, you know, of the time. Usually it's not the other guy. It's, it's you that yeah. has the problem. Like right. when I was when, like me thinking about like not being, and when I say Judged not being or, welcome, yeah. I mean like, like, like I might have felt uncomfortable like wearing like a, if I was decked yeah, out in full a, camo. You got a meat eater shirt on, you know, or whatever, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, but the, the, the <laughs> usually the problem is with you. When I say you, I'm pointing to myself. Yes. Like, so when I <clears throat> met you, even the preconceived ideas that, you know, probably the people this place aren't cool with hunting. That was my problem, actually. Yep. Because it wasn't true. And, and, well, and I'm I'm as guilty as anybody. I've been in the exact same, you know, scenario in other, you know, aspects and of things that I've gotten into that I wasn't as familiar with. And I yeah. was like, oh, if these, you know this is kind of a different group of people that I'm used to hanging around. And right away, it's like you put your fence up, right? Yeah, you put yeah, your yeah. guard up a little bit, um, maybe maybe before you really should. Um, but, you know, again, we're all a product of our life experiences. Yeah. And we're used to being in, for lack of a better term, kind of a little bit of a tribe. We're used to yes. being around a certain type of a group of people that often have a particular set of values that you identify with very easily. And as soon as you cross over into another, you know, tribe or, you know, whatever you want to call that, um, some of those things start to come into question. But I would say sometimes that happens needlessly. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, sh- and that's not to say it isn't going to happen because it will. You're going to come to issues with people. Um, but uh, I don't know if we all just kind of take a step back sometimes and yeah. look at things for what they are. I think a lo- we make a lot of bigger deal out of things yeah. than we should. Well, the truth is, is that, um, you know, there's a, there's a methodology or a philosophy for the preservation of something where people would retreat to their fortresses. You yes. know, I've heard that phrase. You know, and to, for, for modern hunters to retreat to the fortress, which to me, I mean, that would be like my native thing. My, like my native like frequency would be like, oh, we got we to gotta stick even further to the things that yeah. our fathers did. Right, right. <clears throat> Actually, the way to save hunting, which our biggest threat to our way of life and this thing that we love and the wildlife that we love and the wild places that we love is recruitment of new people. Yes. And I mean, and and, education. And, it, and, it, and, and and so we have to find ways to keep the gate open. It's for, funny you say that because I, I think on one of your recent podcasts I listened to, you were using the term guard the gate. Guard the gate, right? yeah. Yeah. But I think it's, it's interesting that you you just kind of flip that, right? Yeah, yeah. You also maybe guard the gate, like that's one term, but I think mind the gate yeah. is maybe even sometimes a better way to think about it. Because it's not like when you say guard the gate, you want to protect it. And I think I believe that there's a reason to protect what yeah, it is yeah. that you love, but you don't want to guard the gate to the extent that you don't let anyone else in. Right, maybe. right, right. Because at that point, you're kind of dooming yourself, right? Yeah. Um. Because I know you've you've got that picture back here of that hunting scene. Yeah, yeah. Did you and see I've that? heard that one where you were talking about that, and that's gone now, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if all we do is guard the gate, yeah. at some point down the road, yeah. our stuff's going to be done too. Well, now, we have to, you know, we have to have at least 
uh, uh, enough uh, wherewithal and forward yeah. thinking that, you know, it's like, yeah, we're going to be a little bit careful about things, but we got to let some people in too. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, and I, I, I got to <clears throat> clarify the guard the gate metaphor. You know, that to me, like what we're talking about to me is guarding the gate. Like, uh, uh, in, yeah, in I it, get that. You know, yep. uh, yeah, yep. just the, the semantics because we haven't used that so much. Like to me, the, the guard the gate idea is is building a strong narrative, building a yep. strong culture. And, 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 and particularly that phrase we use when we're talking about like adamant, intentional anti-hunting sentiment that yep. is designed to – I was looking at the – Humane Society of America website today, actually. And, you know, one of their, like, six mission statements is, you know, ending hunting. Yeah. And they they use the term trophy hunting, yeah. which obviously that's a – that is a that is an inflammatory right. phrase that they use to try to portray us in a certain way. Yes. You know, whatever. Right. But point being – that's to me. To me, this is you know garden. Yes, day. but not, not to get on semantics. I, no, I, but, I understand what but, you're saying, though. And, but <clears throat> we we have to we have to find ways to be inclusive, 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 and 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 ultimately bring people into. You know, it's not like we're just wanting to preserve our our the stuff we get to do that we like. But man, the, the outdoor space, clean, healthy meat. The things that hunting has done for me is something that I would like to share with people. Absolutely. And, you know, there's always byproducts of just maybe you're not into bird watching, but by taking steps towards conservation and whatever it is you're into, it makes the area better for those people that are into bird watching, right? Or whatever. So there's so many ways that things, that these things, you know, can cross over. And I just, in my gut, I've always believed that, you know, we have a whole lot more to gain by working together and a whole lot to lose if we don't. Yes. Um, And so, you know, that's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I'm involved with uh, Arkansas BHA because, you know, no organization is perfect. You know, yeah. they're not going to have all the answers and they're going to do things that, you know, not everybody agrees with. But I think in their, they're trying to put the best foot forward. And yeah. They're trying to do it to protect, first and foremost, protect the resources of hunters and anglers. But they're trying to do it in such a way, at least from my perspective, they're trying to do it in a way that is not off-putting to other yeah. people in the outdoor community, yeah. you know, in the outdoor industry. And I kind of don't see another way forward yeah you know man i was at the bha rendezvous a couple of years ago when yvon chavard yeah is that how you say his name yvon chenard yeah chenard. This, yeah owner of he, patagonia he spoke in uh at the bha rendezvous yeah owner of and founder of patagonia 80 year old man mm-hmm. um man i thought that was awesome incredible that this guy that i mean a billionaire number yeah. one uh and not that that gives him value he's he seems to me to be a pretty incredible man oh, he's uh he's a massive guy. uh proponent of wild places um and will tip his hat to hunting absolutely i mean he was in a room with 1500 yep bad to the bone western hunters and he's sitting up there telling stories about pulling over to throw a roadkill deer in the back of his truck to take mm-hmm. it home and eat it um and I had people message me and ridicule me because I put something up that had his name on it. Yeah. And this guy, oh. this one guy said, did you know that Yvonne Chavard is against uh, hunting brown bears in the Yellowstone ecosystem or, you know, in the greater Yellowstone area? And I, at the time, I actually didn't. I said, no, nah, I didn't. And I was like, I don't know why that has any impact on uh, 
me saying that what just happened sure. with this guy coming and tipping his hat to us. <sighs> right. And like in in there that story right there to me describes kind of again this polarization. Like basically this guy was saying is if you don't agree with me 100% yes, that's that it. we can't be friends. That's it. Well man, I won't have a friend on the planet. None of us will. In a, in in to me for something somebody from Patagonia tipping their hat to the hunting world, which right. they're not gaining anything from no. that. They've got a they've got such a massive market, like the little market of hunters that they could gain from, you know. No. And we're not going to buy Patagonia clothing anyway. We're wearing a lot of other stuff. Sure. Like I'm, what I'm saying is he's got a lot more to lose than he does to gain. We've got a massive well, amount that we could gain from. And I'm not saying and yeah. what that guy's saying is that we would be lower in our standards to let some of these people into our space. To me, that's retreating to the fortress. Uh-huh. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Like basically, man, we just can't do it. And and I I am not happy that he is I mean, I am for the science-based wildlife management practices sure. in a small qu- I mean, we could get into all the details. Right. Is Clay Newcomb for hunting brown bear or grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone yeah. ecosystem under a quota and science-based right. management? Absolutely. Right. Am I offended and unwilling to work with Yvonne Chouinard <laughs> because he thinks that right. you're crazy. Well, and then the other thing is, is like, who can possibly be educated and informed enough to understand the science behind all these different issues, right? And at the end of the day, we're all humans. I've said plenty of things in my life, and I'm going to say plenty of things that I'll look back on and be like, you know what? I was wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think anybody that thinks otherwise is just kidding herself. I mean, we're yeah. all just humans. We make mistakes, and we can change our mind. It's okay. Right. That's you know? right. And it's just such a – in the environment that, that I see us in, and, and not just our own country, but around the world right now, it's just like – it just seems like no one's willing to go and change their mind. It's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's okay yeah, to have a change a of perspective. Um. You know, it's, uh, I don't know why that's so scary to some people, you know. And I guess maybe I've made a whole lot more mistakes (laughs) in my lifetime than a lot of the other people have. I don't know. And maybe I'm (laughs) just more. Well, you're still alive and you're a mountaineer, so you didn't make too many mistakes. But, uh, you know, I just think that sometimes, again, it's just, you know, calm down a little bit, take a step back, and it's going to be okay, you know. Let's let's work together instead of trying to put each other down. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, man, I, I admire what you're doing and the voice that that you have inside, even just locally, in what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think you're a great spokesman for for hunting to a bunch of people that probably wouldn't listen to or have a sure. reason to listen to somebody like me or Colby, uh, mainly because Colby's from Texas. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, Colby, just threw you in the bus for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> I heard him go under. That's why Colby's here. That's why he's here. No, so no, I, I, man, I love your story. Uh, uh, respect what you're doing, and um, um, yeah. Well, likewise, man. Uh, you know, the, the I'm just was pleased to be asked to do this today. The content you've been putting out sure. for a while now has been very high quality, and uh, to you know have an opportunity to come and sort of be a part of that message that you've been you know doing your best to put out there. It was a, a great opportunity, and I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess 
you know, we all have a role to play and you can step back and, you know, live in your own bubble and, and, uh, you know, just do you. And that's fine if that's what you want to do. And, you know, but, um, I don't know. I look at my kids and I see the world we're living in and I sure do feel like we could do better sometimes than we're doing, or at least maybe make some changes to put ourselves in maybe a more favorable trajectory for the young people that are coming up in the world right now. Yep. And, um, you know, I'm just a guy, but I want to do what I can to try to help make a difference. So, yeah. Right on. Um, where can people find you? Yeah. So, um, of course, you mentioned already. I'm a part owner, and uh, officially, my title at Packrat is the I'm the equipment buyer. So, all the gear and that stuff okay. in the store. That's what my main responsibility. But I teach classes there as well, and they're you know various types of wilderness skills. Of course, a lot of that got put on hold due to COVID. But you can um, look us up at uh, packratoc.com. Um, but the place that I spend most of my time is on uh, Instagram and, um, you know, kind of show people what I'm into. And, uh, you can literally just Rick Spicer. Uh, most of that is, um, photography for, yeah. uh, cause I, I am an amateur photographer. I just love taking photographs on trips. Um, so most of that stuff's just like, uh, kind of nature photography type of yeah. stuff, but, uh, pack rat bushcraft on Instagram. Yeah, so that's the Instagram that's handle the, that I knew yeah, you from pack rat bushcraft. Yep, that's the main one that most people know me from. And, um, that's where I'm, uh, just kind of, uh, kind of spend, you know, my dirt time and, uh, you know, whatever it is I'm into, whether it's, you know, building a bow or some arrows or yeah. doing friction fire, or, you know, what, who knows hunting, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so putting stuff out there, but um, Colby, do you have any questions for him? <laughs> I'm sure I do. I got caught up in the conversation of just listening, but Colby's uh, head is like on a swivel. It's just like back yeah, and forth. Yeah, it's like back and forth. forth. We covered it. We you covered gotta, it. You like, gotta, you gotta interrupt us, man. Uh, the no. only way that you get any word edgewise between <laughs> me <laughs> and a guest of mine is to interrupt yeah. us. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground there too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I guess my summary. <laughs> yeah, give us a summary. Yeah. Give us a summary. Yeah. The Colby yeah. Warhead summary. Yeah, I'm just deep in thought over here. No, I, I was just thinking about the whole thing between hunting and this adventurous lifestyle. And I, for me growing up, I got, without knowing it, I was caught up in the utility of, of hunting more so than the adventure. You know, just going mm. out, it's like, this is successful if we come back with something. Or the whole concept of catch and release fishing was out of my mindset, you know? And so since I've been here inside of Arkansas, I've begun to appreciate all these things where you don't, you don't have some utility or like going out and bringing back something tangible. So like I've gotten into into hiking and road biking and fly fishing. And so all these things have just, I've kind of gone the opposite direction where I started out with the utility of hunting and I appreciated all the things that I got out of it, yep. but I'd missed out on the whole adventurous side of it. So like yeah. when we went with mules to Montana, good, you know, example. that was, that was a big thing for me to where it was like, man, this is actually fun to get out and just adventure instead of just right. going out and just seeing, Hey, yeah. I'm just going out for it to fill the freezer. I don't care if it's a spike or whatever, you know? Sure. And, uh, and so I think that's the appreciation that, that I've come into inside of living inside of Arkansas versus Texas, where it's like you go from not having these, you know, national forests and, and public lands to a place to where I can just go and roam without having to knock on some door, or get sure. a hold of somebody. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, th- I think like when you were talking about bushcraft, 
man, I'd like to do that, you know, just yeah. understand more about, just build a adaptability inside of me so that if I find myself in some situation or just, I mean, walking by some plant that I wouldn't know what it is now, if I'm yep. walking down a trail and I see it, it's like, oh, that's cool, you know, yeah. and just uh, growing this appreciation for the environment that I, that I find myself in and draws me into, but just building an ability to, it's, it's like another a deeper level of communing with nature where before my commune with nature would be like, I'm going to go and it's going to provide for me. I'm going to take something out of it yep. to where I can just go and just exist inside of it and get a lot of appreciation inside of that for me, myself. And you know, what I'm bringing back might be something different. It's just bringing back an experience rather than, Oh, I'm going to go and actually like pull something out of it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's something that we could learn from the adventure outdoor side because that's a great point i think i think it's a really notable point colby because the hunting mind frame is to get something to bring back the you know adventure outdoorsman mind frame is to is for the experience yeah and and obviously there's a there's a in the last some time in hunting like we have talked about the experience a lot and how that's valuable but still like i think combining kind of these two ideologies, you probably get a really rich experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, one thing that I can think back about, you know, talk having stories with my dad or my grandpa about going out is like the older they got, the less they cared about actually getting anything. Yeah. They just wanted that time with their family and kind of communing with the natural environment, right? And uh, as much as my grandpa loved to fish, he just wanted to be out there. Yeah. And uh, I, what I'd like to see maybe is a little more of that mentality trickle down into younger people. Yeah. And it's not always about getting something, you know. Yeah. And if you do, yeah. great. And it, and the whole providing for your family thing, I mean, that's a critical component of hunting. And I, yeah. I think everyone should uh, recognize that for what it is. But uh, I think it's it's also okay just to look at it from, you know, from a even a, you know, you look at nowadays with all this covid and craziness going on uh we need wilderness and wild places right now maybe more than we have in a long time for mental health reasons right yeah we're all you know people are cooped up and you gotta whether it's wearing a mask or whatever it is yeah uh you know the ability to uh walk out into a place and just kind of not look at there's nature and here's me but more of the i'm part of this I came yeah. from this, and one day I'm going to go back to this. Yeah. Um, and so I may as well figure out a way to kind of be connected to it, and I, I guess that's ultimately what's led me down the path that um, I have is, like, I just like that feeling. I like yeah. I like the feeling of feeling like I'm more part of the woods than uh, separated from it, yeah. I guess. Yeah, um, that's a good way <clears throat> to put it. I guess uh, one last thing I'd mention uh, that it, and unfortunately, like every other event I know of, it got canceled this year. But another thing that I do is I'm the director of a, uh, wilderness skills, uh, challenge, um, that's called okay. the Bruja Bushwhack. Okay. And it's kind of a mouthful, but, um, there's a website for it. You can go to brujabushwhack.com. Okay. And, uh, it's kind of a cool thing that, uh, me and some friends started about five years ago. And, um, so if, if, uh, the listeners, if you're familiar with an adventure race, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically the way those traditionally would work was you'd get a topographical map and there'd be points on that map and you would, uh, you'd go like 
maybe ride a bike or run or hike and pedal a canoe and all these kinds of things. And you go find those points. Well, what we did was, uh, I, I decided I, I thought that was interesting. Um, but I wanted to maybe make it a little more in the, in the realm of this bushcraft and, and wilderness skills stuff. So, um, first, the first thing we did was we took away, uh, the, the whole race component of it and we designed it so that you can come in last and win. Oh, okay. Doesn't have anything to do with how fast you are. Okay. And so that was the one of the first things that we did. But and so instead of time based, it's point based. And so it's all about being a well rounded outdoors person. Okay. So you still use a topographical map, but you go where you want when you want. You plan your own course for the day. So it's okay. about your ability to understand and read the map and create a a, uh, a plan, basically. I see. I see. And when you successfully arrive at a location, there's a password. You write it down, and you get a point for that at the end of the day when you're graded, or you get a certain number of points. Uh, the next thing is is there's um, some sort of wilderness skill that you have to show proficiency in, whether that's making a fire or doing some first aid or paddling a canoe or uh, rope skills, whatever it may be. Killing a squirrel. Uh, there you go. <laughs> and that brings up one of the things that we were going to go heavy in this year. I've done it in the past, but we always have primitive weapons. We do archery. We do atlatls. We do slingshots. We do blowguns. We okay. do all kinds of stuff. Okay. There's always a primitive weapon. Primitive weapon. I like it. I like it. But this year, um, and I'm, and this is probably a theme going forward, is that um, the teams were all going to have to have at least one person that was going to have a bow with them the whole time, and they're going to be shooting throughout the whole course. Oh. So that kind of changed the game a little bit in terms of making it a lot more interesting for archers and hunters and that type of thing. And then the third component of it is pure nature knowledge. So um, there'll be like key uh, words or, or uh, ID components to things like trees and plants and animal tracks, even stone points. Mm. And you have to tell me what those things are. You take the cumulative of all those different skills, and whoever gets the most point wins. Wow, mm. that's and cool, so, man! Uh, it's a it's so a when neat, is it usually? It's in April every year, okay. and we have postponed yeah, it to. Um, it's actually if if you're here in Arkansas, you may be familiar with it, but there's a place called Birds Adventure Center on the Mulberry River. Okay, and that's where we have it every year. Oh um, wow! I, I'm good friends with those folks, and they have a huge piece of private land. And in addition, I typically get permits from the uh, Forest Service, and we go out and so um teams can expect and you have to do, compete as a team because there's teamwork involved right. it's not a solo event um but you can expect to travel somewhere between six and ten miles over the course of the day so you you cover some ground awesome yeah. um but it's a lot of fun so if if this type of stuff we've been talking about is interesting to you yeah and you'd maybe uh you know you'd like to kind of get a actually do something more directly related to it um you can check out that brew can i use my mule uh, you know what? I don't think I've ever been asked that before. <laughs> so but it's not I, in the rule book. So not, yes, I can. It doesn't say no anywhere. We might have to think <laughs> about that. What if I showed up on a mule? We might have to think about that. I was that. like, yeah. show, like, like, show it to me in the rule book. Right, exactly. Show me the, where yeah. it's illegal to use equine animals. Now, maybe what we need you to do is create a challenge based around a mule, mm -hmm. and we can get you out there. There we go. And you're, uh, you're kind of the, that component. Because um, I love mixing it up with different – yeah. and the other thing about this is, like, the teams, I give them hints, but they don't know what they're getting into until the day of. Oh, okay. So you, that's why it's so important to have, like, a well-rounded uh, team mm. is because you kind of – you know you're going to have to make a fire somewhere. You're probably going to have to do some first aid stuff. You're going to have to paddle a canoe. You're going to have to do primitive weapons, but you don't know exactly what's happening 
And uh, so you got to be able to like, you know, switch wow. gears. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, that's something else that a lot of my energy goes into um, these days. So keep yeah. an eye out for that. That's cool. That I got to say, that's one of the coolest shirts I've ever oh, seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got the shirt on right now. Yeah. <laughs> Bruja, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I saw when you came in, I was like, I need to figure out where you got that yeah. from. <laughs> well, good, good, my good buddy Robert I work with uh, helped me design the logo. Yeah, that's He's really way, cool. way better yeah. at that stuff than me. But, uh, but at any rate. Cool, man. Thanks, thanks a ton, Rick. Appreciate it, and uh, yeah, Ple- man. Pleasures we'll, all mine. We'll find a reason to do this again at some yeah. point. But uh, keep the wild places wild, because that's where the bears live. Thanks, guys. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.